Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature a conversation, one of the highlights of the 2022 Portland Book Festival, between two of our most accomplished fiction writers, George Saunders and Jess Walter. The conversation is, by turns, hilarious, caustic, tender, and profound. Our interviewer for the event was OPB's own Jeff Norcross, who does his usual masterful job moderating. And so I'm going to turn over the introductions and the rest of the show to him. Here is Jeff Norcross. It's so great to see you all here. Uh, My name is Jeff Norcross. I'm the Morning Edition host at Oregon Public Broadcasting. Thank you. George Saunders is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 11 books, including A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, Lincoln in the Bardo, which won the Booker Prize. Congratulations, by the way, 10th of December, a finalist for the National Book Award and winner of the inaugural Folio Award, the brain-dead megaphone, and the critically acclaimed collections Civil War Land, In Bad Decline, Pastoralia, and In Persuasion Nation. His most recent book, is called Liberation Day, and he teaches the creative writing program at Syracuse University. Jess Walter, to my immediate left, is the author of 10 books, most recently the short story collection, The Angel of Rome and Other Stories. His other nine include the national bestseller, The Cold Millions, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Beautiful Ruins, The Zero, the finalist for the National Book Award, and Citizen Vince, winner of the Edgar Award. His work has been published in 35 languages, and his short fiction has appeared three times in Best American Short Stories. Please welcome to Portland Book Festival, George Saunders and Jess Walter. Short stories. Uh, Jess, I once heard you compare the difference between short story writing and novel writing as the same difference between dating and getting married. Wow, my my wife didn't like that answer very much. And I've heard other um, analogies, too, like the difference between sprint running and marathon running. And so I, I want to first start with both of you. Um, do you know when you start a story how long it's going to be? Well, we were just talking about this, the, and I, I thought uh, a swim in the pond in the rain was did the best job of sort of uh, explicating how it is to have the writing itself lead the story. And so often, no. I I do usually know if it feels like a short story. I've only had one short story kind of evolve into a novel. Um, The rest of the time, I I do feel like I'm writing something where I can see the end of it. Um, But how long it is, unless I'm purposely writing microfiction, sometimes I'll say I'm gonna write something under 800 words. Um, For me, no, there, it, it, it really is this sort of process of discovery what the next line leads to in the next line. And, uh, and, and that becomes so thrilling and joyful that I can't imagine doing it any other way. Well, you said there was a short story that you decided to go along with it. Does it ever go the other way? Like you set out to write a novel and then at some point, ooh, it's done. Nothing more needs to be done here. <laughs> every, every time. Um, <laughs> You, you know, novels are just so uh, exhausting, and 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 you take six or seven runs at them. They're like you know, trying to climb some peak without oxygen or a tent or anything. You just keep making these attacks on them, and so um, I. I I have false finishes all the time. My journal is fin- filled with finish the novel today exclamation point. And then two days later, back on the novel. And then this stupid novel. I hate this novel. Um, and so my finish is about six months usually or a year between the time I think I'm done and the time someone finally rips it out of my hands. Huh. 
What about you, George? I, I just assume they're all stories because that the novel that I wrote, I'm not sure it's actually a novel. It's got a lot of lot of white spaces, and, you know. So I, I Link, Lincoln in the I have uh, my basic aesthetic thing is something like you know, little toy car. You wind it up, get it under the couch as fast as possible. So you know, <laughs> so that so I really that's how I understand all storytelling is. Uh, doing something and then cutting it down. And then as soon as it stops escalating, just end it. So I think that's, it's always, I just assume it's a story unless it tells me otherwise, which it never has. (laughs) (laughs) And oh, by the way, welcome to the morning of metaphors. We've already had five here. (laughs) (laughs) Writers, right? It's like a metaphor factory. (laughs) Six. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, George, you, you, you once said that from the time you were 15, you wanted to be a short story writer. Yeah. Uh, is, is, is this form kind of where you live artistically? Yeah, very much. I, I had a uh, really uh, heavy experience with Hemingway early, and then after that with uh, de Maupassant and, and Isaac Babel finally. So I, I just always found it really, I thought it was very cool to be it, because you weren't uh, necessarily known, you know, but you were doing something really intense. And even when I was younger, you read a story, and they don't always... Um, Let's see, it takes a while to learn how to read a short story, I think. They're not, it's not an, uh, an intuitive form. So I could feel that it, there's something kind of cool about it. And it would take some study to figure out how, what, what was a story and what wasn't. So yeah, I thought, I thought it was... And when we went to Syracuse, um, Tobias Wolf was there. Raymond Carver had just left. So there was a real feeling that there was a kind of a sacred art form that was difficult to master, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. So... Um Rather than touching on all of the short stories in both your collections, I, I thought that maybe we would drill down on a, on a couple, uh, one from you, Jess, and one from you, George. And, uh, and George, why don't we start with you? Okay. Um, there's, a, there's a story in your collection. It's called Ghoul. Good luck with the setup on this yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to give it a try. Okay. And you can fill in the blanks if, if you need to. There's a man named Brian sure. who lives in an underground world known as The Region. And his place is this kind of apocalyptic amusement park called the Maws of Hell. Mm-hmm. That, that old trope. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure. And, and it's all built for these mysterious visitors who, who never come. Uh, but clearly you're not allowed to say so because employ, employees are punished brutally for even the slightest infraction, like telling the truth. Yeah. So um, with that set up, could you, could you read a yeah, passage from, sure. this, from this story? Yeah. Like a Lassie episode. That's right. uh, so he's just seen the, this, uh, some colleagues of his making love in public, which is kind of what they do in this place. <laughs> like in that one Lassie episode. Uh, <clears throat> Moments after hopping over Gwen and Mr. Frame, I find Mr. Frame sitting across from me at lunch in dining, explain, explaining why he, a married m- man, was just now mating with Gwen. Mr. Frame's wife, Anne Frame, used to be on guillotine cart pull team five. Those guillotines being heavy, needing to be pulled over some fake rough terrain, which, though made of poly, still must be bumpy to seem real, Anne's back went out, and she was transferred to Victorian weekend. A big adjustment, since instead of being scary, she had to adopt the mindset of mincing and, <laughs> she had to adopt the mindset of mincing and serving. Now she is cockney cook, sweet gig. All she has to do is every half hour blunder into this formal dining hall, interrupting some royals, visitors, eating in there, then blunder out, knocking over a tea cart while apologizing for her humble class origins and a Cockney accent. (laughs) But alas, apparently her new role has caused marital stress because Mrs. Frame is now constantly practicing her Cockney accent, even while on break in the room. I try to be a pal by pointing out that Tom himself always takes ample care prior to the moment of his decapitation, that's another sidebar, <laughs> to, to appear genuinely terrified. Also, read the lightning burst thunderclap spade of total darkness that allows him to switch the headless after animatron in for himself on the chopping block before he hops down the disahole. Does he not always endeavor to do that quickly so the switch will go unnoticed by our visitors? Maybe I suggest he's more like Anne than he wishes to acknowledge. Isn't his quick hopping analogous to Anne's continually practicing her accent, i.e. a form of admirable professionalism? I guess what I'm saying is, I don't practice hopping into the dissahole when we're on break, he says. I get that. 
I say listening and agreeing, being a proven path to friendship. That sounds frustrating. But she just goes on and on. He says, governor this, governor that. And why? For what? Wants to do a good job, I say, for her visitors, of whom there never are any, he says crossly. Then there is this rather big silence. Not that I'm saying there never are any, he says. I know you're not saying that, Tom, I say. I should probably just shut up, he says. Probably, I say. Geez, I think Tom... Mr. Frame, you have really put me in a bad spot. Rules are rules, friends are friends, but now rules and friends urge differing, course, differing courses of action upon me, and which shall I choose? <laughs> so the reaction you had to that passage is the same reaction I have to George Saunders' books over and over again, which is he's writing about these hellish scenarios, but yet it's funny. <laughs> so can you talk about that? Can you talk about that balance between, you know, winking at us through this awful, awful type of storytelling? Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, I, I uh, yeah, there's a, okay, Flannery O'Connor said this thing. She said, uh, a man can choose what he writes, but he can't choose what he makes live. So that's deep, because it means we might think we're in a certain lineage. So I always wanted to be Hemingway, Chekhov, Tolstoy, Alice Monroe, Grace Paley, Toni Morrison, but then, <laughs> but, or any combination. But then, you, you know, you go to do it, and if, if the heat doesn't rise, then you have to take a different course. So if you, you know, you might start out wanting to be a, a string quartet writer a la Shostakovich. You play your string quartet, everybody nods off. But you notice when you pick up the accordion, people dance. Then you have to, I mean, it's a big moment, I think, in a, in a young writer's life when you go, okay, I don't get to be who I want to be. I have to be who I have to be, you know? So for me, the humor is one, but also like the, um, to start off with a really weird premise like that, you know, kind of a wacky premise that is a little bit off-putting even. For some reason, that's what I like to do. And then the mission becomes, can I, in spite of all the strangeness and the darkness, can I lead the reader uh, to a place similar to they might find themselves after a classic short story? So in other words, a place where they feel included and seen and engaged and that the, the things that actually keep them up at night are somehow coming into the story. So I, I found it really to do my deepest emotional work, I have to start in a kind of a strange place. I don't really know why, but I like the challenge of that, like trying to start with that and the reader's first reaction might be, God, what a strange deal, you know? I think I'll go watch TV and then, <laughs> And then if you can kind of give enough breadcrumbs and enough little treats, then they start to go, okay, maybe this is um, only as strange as the actual world. And, you know. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah? How, how are these stories as strange as the actual world? Well, I mean, if you, this story, you know, is, is about uh, somebody who is in a system that is uh, requiring him to lie. You know, I mean, so, yeah. yeah. Or else he gets kicked to death. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Jess, <laughs> let's bring you in. Uh, I, 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 I'm just going to sneak the phrase prior to his decapitation into this story, <laughs> even though it doesn't really fit because I'm so envious of it. Well, it's interesting. It's a little different because your story is a little uh, apocalyptic too, but it's, it, it ends on a different note. Um, it's called Town and Country. And the setup here is uh, a man named Jay is looking for a place for his dad, who is old, he is a widower, he has dementia, uh, and he gets a tip that there is a different kind of nursing home in North Idaho, and, and, they, go to, and they go to visit. Uh, and so that's, that's where we can pick up yeah, the story. The only other thing you need to know about Jay is he's in his 40s, and he came out to his parents when he was 20, um, but his dad has forgotten. And in, in his dementia, he has to keep coming out over and over to his father, <laughs> which I thought would just be the best Sisyphean thing one could write about. And they're very different, Jay and his dad. It took me a week to find the town and country senior inn. This was partly because it was nearly 400 miles away and partly because, as the director said over the phone, it was not technically a licensed elder care facility. 
wait, which part are you technically not, I asked, an elder care facility or licensed? You really have to come and see for yourself, he said. And when I described my father, he said, oh, you're definitely going to want to come. So one Saturday, I threw dad in the car and we drove seven hours north on twisty Highway 95, straight up the long spine of Idaho. The town and country, it turned out, was an actual motor inn built in the 1950s on an unincorporated stretch near a stain of a town called State Line. The building had been updated when it was turned into this senior residential hotel, but it was basically the same sprawling, seedy, one-story motel it had always been. There was a carport fronting the lobby, and behind that, a chop house lounge with no windows, a small stage, and smoke-stained carpeting halfway up the walls. The staff at the town and country were dressed not like orderlies or nurses, but like employees of a 1960s hotel. Women in waitress dresses, men in high-collared blue jackets and gendarme hats. The grounds, if you could call a gravel parking lot that, were dotted with old people wandering around behind tall fences being steered back to their rooms by men dressed as bellmen and porters. The director of the town and country was named Skip. He was three shades of gray stacked one on top of the other and looked like he might check into the hotel himself soon. <laughs> He said he'd started this place for his own parents, who had run a saloon in one of these old mine, Idaho mining towns. They weren't really cut out for the kind of place where Grammy does art projects, he said. The town and country had a simple, respectful ethos. The elderly folks were not decrepit patients, but hotel guests, checked into one of the 40 guest rooms. A few of those rooms were reserved for couples, but most of the guests were single, divorced, widows, or widowers. They could do whatever they wanted in their rooms, smoke, drink, screw, watch TV. But in a nod to nostalgia, the TVs only had four channels and the phones were rotary dial. One necessary concession had been to put in a state-of-the-art sprinkler system and non-flammable bedding. We do tend to get a few sno snoozing smokers, Skip admitted. A continental breakfast was served each morning in the old hotel lobby from 5 a.m. to noon, although if the guests became sick or non-ambulatory, the food could be delivered to them for a room service fee. Anything extra at the town and country would be tacked onto the bill, just like at a hotel. Laundry, meds, a haircut, all arranged for a fee. There was no group therapy, no activity room, no sing-alongs, no craft projects. There were only two things on the calendar every day. Continental breakfast, and beginning at 3.30, dinner and happy hour. This is what we're most proud of, Skip said. And with a flourish, he produced a thick dinner menu and handed it to my dad. The food was straight out of my childhood. Roast and potatoes, pork chops and applesauce, French dip, Monte Cristo, and the prices. You could have London broil and a baked potato for $4. You could have goulash or spaghetti and meatballs for $2.50. Skip saw my smile. Yeah, the prices make them really happy. <laughs> the real price, the price you'll get on your monthly bill is approximately four to five times that. <laughs> the bar menu was just as amazing. A screwdriver for $2, a Tom Collins for $2.50, beer for 75 cents. Our beers are six ounces and we make really weak cocktails, Skip said. We can also break up medication and serve it in non-alcoholic drinks, basically soda or tonic water. They don't mind taking their Coumadin when it comes in a martini glass. We have a light jazz combo that plays standards three nights a week, quietly, and two nights we have country music. No music Sundays and Mondays, lights out at eight, nine on weekends. I looked over. Dad was staring at the menu like it was a time travel portal. My dad's been having this other uh, issue, I said, his libido. Skip nodded and chose his words carefully. The dominant model for elder care focuses, of course, on longevity and health, but this can be at the cost of what I would call personal choice. At the town and country, we want to preserve personal choice, which means, he smiled and I saw a black eye tooth, we go through a lot of penicillin. <laughs> it was unbelievable, like a rat pack nursing home. I have to ask, is this all, I looked over at dad, still intently reading the menu, legal? <laughs> Be honest, who here really wants to live at the town and country? <laughs> the reason I say that uh, is because 
I'm sure there are many people in this room who are either in this space where they're thinking about their last place or they have somebody in their family that is going through that transition and the, the options suck, yeah. you know? So I'm wondering what this story says about how we treat our elderly in this country. Yeah, I don't, I don't typically write very autobiographically, but if I find something that intersects with my life, then I try to find other characters to feel some of those things. And I was trying to find a place for my hard-drinking, hard-smoking dad um, who lived, uh, after my mom died, lived alone and with, a, with an even harder-drinking girlfriend for about 20 years until she passed away. And I, I wrote this story because I wanted to invent this place for my dad. You know, I wanted to, um, I wanted, you know, I remember I would, when I left every day, I would say, can I get you anything, dad? And he said, you can put a bullet right here. Oh. And uh, I'd say, you know, we'd both end up in the emergency room. Yeah. And he'd say, that's the truth. And so, um, you know, the last thing he wanted was to be doing craft projects. And so I kept, I, I, it was, you know, there, there's a lot of dystopian writing and this was a utopia that I was writing. I was trying to write the place that my dad would find dignity and peace and probably get laid in his last days, you know, so. Well, there it is, the angel of light, the angel of darkness. <laughs> I'm gonna put that on a t-shirt and wear it home. <laughs> hi honey, angel yeah. of darkness. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> She's like, yeah, hi, yeah. welcome home. Um, one, one other question about this story, Jess, it's set in North Idaho and you know, you live in Spokane and you reference it a lot in your stories. I mean, the Pacific Northwest is kind of a character in your writing. Um, can you talk about how that sense of place manifests itself? I mean, how does, how does that show up on the page? Yeah, it's, you know, I've always felt a little off the grid as a writer living my whole life in Spokane. And, um, I remember being at the national book awards and someone said, it's so amazing to interview you. You're kind of a recluse. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm really not. It's just, please come to Spokane. You can stay at my house. And, um, but that, uh, I, I love, I have a literary atlas of the whole world and I love adding the places in the Northwest to it. I remember one of the first things that I wrote about Portland was for Portland Noir and the editor contacted me and I wrote a story and the first sentence was, I fucking hate Portland. And um, I was so happy with that story, you know? And, uh, um, and I don't, but the character did. But, uh, but just that, you know, to put all that, whatever anti-Portland stuff was swirling around in 1994 in this one character, you know, it's, it was, it's really fun to have this sort of, I think, less discovered playground to write about. And writing about North Idaho, I mean, that's a little bit of a political story because the other thing about his dad is a longtime factory worker. He's fallen under the sway of Fox News. And, um, and that, you know, desire to, to live in a nostalgic, make America great world again is sort of the undertone of that story. You know, that world never really existed. The town and country doesn't really exist. And, um, and it, it was, it's sort of a way to, I think to write about the, you know, that, that fissure that I feel in the Northwest between blue Washington and uh, mostly blue Washington and red Idaho. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, George. I, I love your writing, but I don't quite have a sense of the place of it. I mean, you live in Southern California, I, you teach at Syracuse, but does your, does your writing flow from a particular physical space that you can not, point to? Not really. I think uh, comically it's Chicago, the south side of Chicago. That, that was kind of where, that's where I grew up. And uh, there's just a, at that time and place in the 60s and 70s, there's just a kind of a, I think it like a Carlin-esque sort of feeling. Everybody was political, uh, kind of lovingly so. And the, the emblematic joke was uh, we lived next door to this couple for years, never really knew them. They were kind of, they were kind of private. Uh, then her mom passed away. So my dad went to the service and uh, she was 92 and, you know, so my dad said to the woman, you know, I, I'm sorry for your loss. It seemed like your mom had a, you know, a long, healthy life. And the woman goes, yeah, this is the sickest she's ever been. <laughs> and, and then the Chicago part of it was that my dad, he, of course, he, oh yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah, I'm glad she had a long life. Then he came home and he was sort of, uh, my dad gets a certain look on his face when, when something beautiful has happened like that. So he just came home tickled to tell us. So he was gentle with her, but then he, you know, fully saw the the, the fun in it. So I think that for me, the whole uh, Chicago ethos is 
you, you know, you would never say, like a, an uncle would never say to his nephew, you're doing so well in school, we're really proud of you, you know? He'd go like, you jag off, you <laughs> jag off, you got moxie, you know? And then, but you, but you could translate it. You kind of knew that, that's what he meant, you know? So, yeah, well, you do have a distinctly American voice yeah. uh, because you put these humans in these horrifying situations, but they just sort of earnestly go about their business, yeah. you know? <laughs> and like the life. story, yeah, well, the story <laughs> you read earlier and Liberation Day is a great example of this. Am I, am I wrong in thinking there's just sort of something uniquely American about this good-natured pluckiness and eager, eagerness to please, even in these hellish situations? I think so. I mean, that was always sort of the, the idea was, yeah, your job sucks, but it sucks worse to not have it, so buck up, you know? And, and um, so, so, I mean, I remember working at, I worked at a slaughterhouse for a while in my 20s, and uh, it, it was hard, you know, terrible, hard work. I mean, I, I would go home and um, the next morning I'd wake up on, and I was 24 or something, couldn't get my hands open because you're holding these hooks and knives and stuff. So you have to run your hand under hot water. Finally, you get them opening it, then you go in again, you know. So I think, but at the same time, to go in there and say, hey, guys, this is really hard. That wasn't going to play, you know. <laughs> so, so then you're like, well, I can either have a really miserable day full of negativity or I can go, okay, eight hours, and you're out. And then you can get your hands open up again, you know. So, so that's, that's in, certainly in the title story. There's a guy who's not, not leading his best life. Uh, but, you know, in order to make it not worse, he's got to kind of, kind of boy himself up somehow. Well, it's interesting. There's, there, I have a friend here in the audience, Eddie Song, who has translated three of your books into Chinese and is currently at work in translating Liberation Day into Chinese as well. Not for China, for Taiwan, <laughs> because... <laughs> Your books don't sell in China. <laughs> I wonder why. Uh, but I, I wonder if you ever worry or, or even think about how your stories could travel around the world and how they convey to other cultures. I, I kind of don't, just because I, it's, um, you know, for me, it's always hard to get any story to, to play out honestly. So it's all I can do just to try to um, deal with that story in front of me. And I have this faith that if I... Uh, you know, I'm a real rewriter, so I have faith that if I apply my subconscious to it over and over again, earnestly, it'll spit something out that'll be of value. And if it's of value anywhere, I'm happy. You know, I, in other words, I, my whole writing philosophy is to try to reduce anxiety. Like, not when I was young. I, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for me. I don't know about anybody else. Yeah, no, that doesn't um, work over here. <laughs> but, you know, when I was younger, there was a lot of this kind of, should I be experimental or realist? Should I be uh, a regional writer or not? And and that's the only time I ever got locked up was when I was trying to make conscious analytical decisions about what kind of writer to be. And when I finally started working pretty well, it was always just this very simple process of reading what I did the day before, making little line edits, putting it in over and over again, completely free of anxiety, because all you're doing is just deciding, you know, micro deciding over and over again to taste. Um, so that's, in a way, that's my whole philosophy, and if, I hope that it connects with people, but I know that that's the only way it ever could, is to be produced that way. Yeah. Jess, you told the, uh, the Miami Book Fair last month that you were looking forward to this event, but you were kind of terrorized a little bit, because you said that it seems like when George puts together a collection of short stories, they're just perfect. You know, oh. they hang together perfectly. <laughs> it's like they were meant for that structure. Uh, we can talk about whether or not that's true, George, but... It is. It is. Okay, yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, the, the, the actual we don't feeling, even have to talk about it, right? <laughs> so effortless, sure. The actual feeling was that you've been asked to be like at a soul, um, you know, or a, a, a festival, and then you look over and Aretha's singing oh next God. to you, you know? It's no, like, uh, no. Right, right back at you. Yeah, yeah. But do you struggle with that? I mean, finding no. how the stories come together and how they hang together? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I have always loved story writing, but I... I started as a novelist. Um, mostly, I was sending out short stories forever, but living in Spokane, Washington with no agent, they were just landing on slush piles. I used to call them manila boomerangs because yeah. <laughs> you'd send them out, uh, self-addressed stamped envelope, and you had to seal your own doom in the envelope. Yeah, Please send yeah. this back to me oh, so yeah. I can send it somewhere else to send it back to me. And, um, and so... Um, I was discovered, I guess, first as a novelist, and I think, but that question of process, when I'm writing a novel, I'm really writing a whole bunch of small pieces that 
that fit together in some way. And so it, you know, and, and that, that line between novel and short story, Lincoln and the Bardo is a great example, um, but also Jennifer Egan, um, David Mitchell. I mean, I think there's, I think the expansiveness of the novel is helped by having people who also write short stories, mm -hmm. by having it, you know, question exactly what that is. So yeah, I, I um, when I put together a short story collection, sometimes it feels a little like a yard sale, you know, like I'm looking through <laughs> the last 40 short stories I wrote. Well, anyone want any of this stuff? You know, here's a, here's an old credenza. It's kind of beat up, but uh, if I put $4 on that, someone will want it. And, um, uh, and I read other people's collections and they feel like these incredible concept albums, you know, and uh, so, so I, I, but I also am so at home with my insecurities that um, <laughs> I, I would weigh like 46 pounds if I got rid of all of them. So, so it's, I, I like most of them. Yeah. yeah. And, and you don't struggle with that too, George? Yeah, no, I, well, I think um, that that process I just described, it even works at the level of the ordering of like I've, We'll have nine stories and then kind of just put the titles on index cards and kind of Rubik's Cube them around a bit. But the same, it's the same deciding process, which is like the uh, optometrist, you know, is this better or is this better? Mm -hmm. and, and, and really, and that, I have come to just trust that 100%. So try to have no big thematic ideas, just whatever, um, whatever gets the reader off the roller coaster in the most stunned state. You know, and and some sense that you can actually feel that uh, intuitively as you're putting things together. So, yeah, I mean, and then that's um, that's really it. And, and you know, and, that, and then of course it does. I think that pr approach does produce a certain effect. But the, the the beautiful kind of magical part is I don't know what the effect is exactly until it's done. And even then, I'm I'm struggle to articulate it. But so the job is not so much what do I want you to think, but partly where do I want you to feel it, like. I know this part of the story is, is critical. Uh, I don't quite know what a reader will take from it, but it'll be uh, intense at that point. Uh, I know if I put the stories in this order, it's going to give off more heat than if I do in this way. So, so I guess the value of that is that there's something other than your conscious everyday mind that's working on the stories, and you're giving it a lot of chances to do it. So I've often had that feeling of, you know, not really be crazy about this person, the person who has to talk off the top of his head and kind of feeling him to be fairly predictable in his ideas and his politics. And, and, but the person that comes on the page after all this revision is sometimes a pleasant surprise to me. I'm not, it's, he's not as dopey as I am. He's a little smarter, funnier, a little more generous. You know? So that's a very addictive thing. You know? I think that's one of the joys of putting the collection together, too, is watching it come together in that way that feels better than, than the pieces. Yeah, and it's not really you doing it. It's yeah. kind of it's yeah. saying, get out of the way, let me order myself, yeah. and then I'll tell you something you don't know. It's just yeah. amazing. Yeah. Jess, there's a, there's a story. Um, well, the title story in your book, it's, it's not a short story. It's, it's more like a novella, The Angel of Rome. Uh, and it's got it's got a sweep. It's got a novel-like sweep. It's got characters. It spans time. It spans place. Um, why did you want to include that one? And why did you want to name your whole book after it? <laughs> um, uh, it's interesting. The, there's another story called Famous Actor, and for a while I thought the whole collection would be called Famous Actors. Mm -hmm. And then I, I there was when I looked at that story, it's a, it is a novella. I, I wrote it actually in collaboration with an actor named Eduardo Ballerini. Mm -hmm. And we had this fascinating process where we, he had studied Latin in, in Trastevere, Rome, my favorite neighborhood. And so we started just talking about that. And, and I said, um, we thought, you know, stories are written, um, with the audiobook as kind of the afterthought. What if we wrote a story that, that was meant for that. And Eduardo had read my novel, Beautiful Ruins, and had made it better somehow, which was like, how? Uh, it was a little, <laughs> little daunting. It's like, uh, uh, but so, so we started kicking this idea around, and it, it was so thrilling. I get a real charge out of trying to do different things, and having an actor table read a story as I was writing it was so great. Having him make contributions, having us debate how a voice should sound. Um, I went back to rewrite it, and it just, for me, it just became bigger and more interesting, and it had that big sweep of time. I got to return to Italy, um, which I love in the in the story. And when I was looking at the collection, I realized that um, the whole thing I was I was trying to find in a really difficult political and kind of personal time these little moments of 
uh, kind of meaning or hope connected to unlikely characters. And Ronnie Tower is this American actor who's making a movie in in um, in Italy, and he he is um, this sort of figure who becomes the angel for you know for this young man who's uh, who's studying there. And and I realized that all the stories kind of had that. And and if I I thought if I can not violate my cynical literary principles while still <laughs> finding these slivers of hope in these stories, um, and that one felt to me like the one that did that the best. And um, and I also thought it would just be a more welcoming title than famous actors, which sounded sort of small minded and cynical, you know. Mm -hmm. so. It's a beautiful title. Yeah, yeah. Uh, George, um, it, it just seems like so many of the stories that you write are um, allegories for what we're grappling with these days. Mm -hmm. um, struggles with capitalism, authoritarianism, fake news, lies, a fractured political environment. And yes, we are talking about this three days out from the midterm election. Yeah. Does, writing this, does, write, does writing these stories help you make sense of it all? Not really. I mean, it, no, no. I mean, seriously, because I think, uh, you know, Chekhov said a, a story or literature doesn't solve problems, but it formulates them correctly. So I'm, I'm finding at this stage of life that writing the stories, um, sometimes it, you know, it confuses me a little bit more. It makes me feel that the solutions aren't quite as easy as I might have thought they were when I was younger. But conversely, I, I'm OK with that. I, I think to, um, you know, if stories can uh, when I wrote that book about the Russians, one thing I took away was that stories sometimes just show us how facile our judgments usually are. You know, we, both, we all know what we think about stuff. And maybe literature is a place where you go for a little blessing of being destabilized about that a little bit. So Chekhov has this beautiful story called Gooseberries. And one of the most beautiful parts is a big um, takedown of the idea of happiness. Happiness is decadent. Your happiness often comes at the expense of someone else's. Um, he's got this line, you know, every happy man should have an unhappy man in his closet mm -hmm. with a hammer <laughs> to remind him by his constant tappings that not everyone is happy and sooner or later life will show him its claws. So you read that and it's so original, such an original take on, on, on happiness and being suspicious of it. But then in the same story, there's a guy who, the same guy who makes that speech is in a, in a pond swimming joyfully on his back going, oh my God, oh my God, I love this. So those two things hang there together. And you, you, know, you say, Anton, oh, what is, which one is it? And he goes, da. Mm -hmm. you know? so, so to me, that moment where my usual everyday judging mind gets just stunned for a second and goes away, that's really worth a lot. You know? I, and I would argue it, it probably does in some ways help you um, in times of political uncertainty because whatever you do will then be coming from a place of more patience and affection and stability. And even if you have to, you know, push back or you have to, um, you know, oppose, you, you're doing it from a place that's more capacious and it's not, it's not just surface level reaction. Also, it makes, it makes me feel better to be working out of affection, you know, as opposed to anger. So it's when I go up and write, what happens with me is my monkey mind gets quieted down just by the process of looking at sentences and making small choices, the level of rumination comes way down, you know, and then you go back down just feeling, you know, in my case, 20% calmer, which is, you know, that's pretty good. I mean, for, for, for me, yeah. yeah. You were, you, you, speaking of the fractious environment, you were kind of uh, present at the creation and that you covered the 2016 Trump campaign for the New Yorker. Yeah. Why? <laughs> no, and, and just, how did that help? Really, you? just because they asked me, and I and yeah. I didn't. It was agitating and troubling, and I thought, well, what better way to get in touch with it than to go there? You know, so um, I went to a bunch of rallies in Phoenix and Wisconsin, and then one crazy one in San Jose. And of course, it was good because I, you know, I pass. I'm like, <laughs> hi, I'm a Trump supporter. <laughs> okay, yeah, you. Uh, or, or sometimes I would say I'm a I'm a writer for the New Yorker, and they'd go, what's that? You know. Uh, <laughs> So, but, but then I would say, I'm a liberal, I'm left of Gandhi, tell me your shit, you know? And they would, because I, I mean, I can get along with people pretty well. So it was just kind of going in there and, and as a fiction writer, trying to see what does it sound like? What are they saying? What does it smell like? What's the weirdness? What's the funniness? Uh, so yeah, it was really interesting. And, and of course, uh, that was just before he got the nomination. So I, I was, you know, at that time, I just noticed that his rallies were 20,000 crazy evangelical people. Like, I mean, I mean, I mean, evangelical about him, you know, 
enthusiastic, and I'd go to the Democratic rally, it was like, <laughs> you know. But it didn't quite register that that was a problem, you know. But in, in hindsight, it was, it was all there, you know, so. How, how did that experience inform your writing? Uh, I'm not, I don't know, actually. I mean, I'm sure it, it did. I mean, in, in this book, there's a couple places of, of uh, political violence. And there was always a moment at these Trump rallies where the, the, um, the venue would empty out of one door, and then there would be a, a, a sea of anti-Trump people, and then those two rivers would hit. And it was always amazing, you know, because you'd see most people were on their phones, and I'll be home in half an hour, and then 15 or 20 were just screaming or fighting or pushing. And in San Jose, uh, well, it happened once in each place. In Arizona, a young anti-Trump person was punched in the stomach by an old dude, knocked to the ground. And then in San Jose, I, I was there when this older Trump supporter, kind of a 70-ish rancher, uh, got slapped in the face by a young anti-Trump person, dropped to her knees, you know, I helped her out and I went to the young woman and said, you know, you're not helping the case. And she had her hands up because she thought I was coming for her. And then I said, I'm, I'm one of you. She goes, oh, good. And then she started crying, you know. So for me, the, the lesson is that that level of violence, it's just a, it's a toxin. You, it, it doesn't matter how righteous you are. If you have violence, it's going to affect the person. It's going to affect you. Uh, and that's in, that's in this book, I think. There's several places where they're political operatives. And, and uh, so it's, I mean, it's easy to be passionate, and we have to be. But, but when, to have seen that happen, to see the passion go into violence and to see the effect it has on people, it was really new to me and, and sobering. You know? So you can't, you can't back it up, and you can't reverse it, and you can't deny it. You know? <laughs> Cheerful, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jess, uh, so many of the characters in your stories and in your books, I mean, they're, they're, so, they're so rich and there are so many dimensions to them, but so many of them are lonely. You know, I, there's just a pervasive sense of loneliness in a lot of your stories. And uh, I, I'm wondering if, if that is on purpose and, and what, what you're trying to say about uh, it had that. had never occurred to me, but uh, I will get back on Facebook. Thank you. Um, uh, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that, that what George was saying about the, you know, the way in which reading literature and, and getting past those political or systemic issues and seeing them as what it is to be human. Um, and I don't think social media has solved loneliness from what <laughs> I can tell uh, or anything else. I think it's a state that many of us live in, misunderstood, um, misread, um, you know, and so I, I, you know, I have a great family, wonderful friends, and yet I, that sense of being crashing around in this casing, unable to really connect with other people, I think haunts every human at some level. And it's, and when I find it in stories that I read, when I find it in fiction, it, um, you know, it always strikes me as true. And I guess you're trying to write toward truth. You know, the, in um, the title story in Liberation Day, the pinioned, you know, guy with the, with the woman of the house there, just, you know, their, their incredible neediness is, seems to me, again, one of those really universal things that everybody feels. So, um, so if the characters, you know, display that, I suppose it's because I think it's how many of us feel deep down, mm -hmm. at least sometime in our lives. Yeah, Beautiful. yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, both of these collections are remarkable in their diversity. You have male and female characters, you've got young and old, you've got people in the present, you've got people in the past, people in realistic situations and in very surrealistic situations. <laughs> is, is there a theme, and, and this is a question for both of you, and you can take it in turn, is there a theme that binds all these stories together? Hmm. I, I mean, I th just sort of having had the book come out, the one thing I noticed, and I didn't notice it when I was writing it, it's just that in all the stories in, the, in this book, there's kind of like someone who starts off a little deluded or misled or confused and then stumbles towards something like truth, you know? And I th not always, it, it doesn't always make their life easier, but that's something I didn't, I had no idea how I was doing. And then the other thing that I kind of did know was that there's a, um, a lot of the people are struggling with self, you know, like, like what gets us into this problem in the world? Well, we're born, we immediately think we're uh, central, you know, we're like the star of the show. The world is just waiting for us to show up, thank you. Uh, and we think we're permanent, you know, and, and so those two ideas that we're, we're central to the proceedings and we're permanent, 
then cause all the problems. You know, when you start to get sick and die, it's, it's a terrible affront. You know, uh, when you find out that actually you're not the center of the world, it's difficult. Um, so I think that was in the book. But then, uh, you know, sometimes when you're writing, you, you have a sort of notion and the book will say, are you sure about that? You know, so in this book, there's a couple of times where I thought, oh, actually, the self, it's so fun to be, to have a self, you know, to have memories, to have, uh, and it, as you get older, like at 63, to go, wow, I was just, uh, I was a particular kid in Chicago in the early 60s. That's crazy, you know, and that kid is going to die pretty soon. Whoa, <laughs> you know, like that, there's something beautiful about that, about the idea that you, you know, you, you are a person and you do have a self. So on the one hand, yes, we should all be free of self, but at several times in the book, there's someone who was made artificially free of self by having their memories taken away, and they're desperately trying to get back that little handful of memories they have. So that, I think in the end, the book, a book can be a really nice way to um, pose an idea and then have it contradicted, you know, and let those mm -hmm. things kind of... Yeah, and I found myself looking for heroes in your stories, mm -hmm. and there were some heroic acts, but... Also, a lot of bad decisions, a yeah, lot of missteps. Yeah. And so it was messy, you know? Messy. It was like, like humanity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, um, I, I feel like the, a story is hopeful to the extent that it's true to its own DNA. So if you have a Hollywood movie where two misfits can't stand each other, but then they do like each other, and they win the lottery, you're like, that's, that's not hopeful. That's bull****, you know? <laughs> So if you have a story, then and the first two thirds of it are telling you, and that's your job in rewriting. What what are you telling me, story? Like I don't want to falsify you, so let me really pay attention to the clues you're given, even as I'm adjusting the clues. Then I want you to be so true to yourself, and I'm assuming there's readers out there who will feel that as as positivity. Not, not that everything turns out great, but that people do have certain resources they can bring to bear. And the most important relationship is the reader and the writer, who are huddled over this made up object. What is true? What is true? What is true? And if, if at the end you feel that you and I are still together, that's a huge victory. You know, we've, we've, we've puzzled over something important together and neither one of us is falsified. What could be better than that? You know, that's beautiful. Mm. Uh, Jess, common themes, through lines? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think I have sort of stubbornly refused to be categorized as a writer over the years, nonfiction and crime fiction and literary fiction and um, but I always see this sort of through line of wistful, kind of hopeful humor, even in really mm -hmm. dark stories. And so the very first story in this collection is called um, Mr. Voice, and it's about this really unlikely stepfather. Um, there was this guy on the radio in Spokane in the 70s who had one of those incredibly deep voices, and he'd always be like, you know, this weekend at Spokane Raceway Park, we're turning into a giant mud pit. <laughs> and, um, and I just thought, what if that guy was your stepfather? And, um, uh, and so, the, uh, and then, and so sort of, when I looked back at the stories that I chose, they had these really unlikely connections between people where there's still a moment where they can surprise you. Mm. Um, and having the first word of that story, I realized when I put the collection together was mother. The girl in the story says, mother was a stunner. And then she mm. talks about him meeting Mr. Voice. And then the last word was father. And I just thought, oh, I love that. And then I looked at the very last story, which is called The Way the World Ends, which is a um, comic story about two climate scientists interviewing for the same job at Mississippi State University um, uh, engaging in what can only be called the first ever literary climate orgy I think um, and the last word of that story was hope and I thought there was this kind of clarity through line of again you know writing about dark situations not sacrificing hope hopefully the satiric humor that I like, but still finding some way toward these connections that surprised me and hopefully will um, surprise the readers too, that a guy like Mr. Voice can turn out to be a good stepfather. You know? <laughs> Last question, um, and it's, it, it flows from the recognition that we've all been through a lot in the last two years and every level of our lives. What we do for a living and our interpersonal relationships and what we take joy in have been affected in some way through the pandemic, and I'm wondering how the two of you think you're different writers than you were in, say, March of 2020. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, I think what you said is, was just right, you know, that the, um, 
the responsibility of connecting with readers is it seems even more urgent because I know you know during the pandemic to, to I was working on that Russian book and to read those stories and just feel another human being on the other side of it was actually a lot a lot more comfort than I think I would have admitted or thought you know to say okay the world seems insane uh, everything seems to be falling apart and yet Chekhov you know and and maybe to say that that's a lot actually to feel that um, and maybe that feeling of connection is more real than the various surficial feelings of disconnection that we're actually being fed. You know, we're being fed a lot of, a lot of uh, agitation and a lot of um, uh, reminders of disconnection. So for me, it's like, well, actually, if we have ever thought in this country that literature was sort of a, a fading sideshow, you know, uh, sort of something that us bookies do that's kind of cute, you know, well, this, this time we're in should remind us that, no, actually, it's the central storytelling and story receiving is the central human activity. The brain does it in every instant. They, the scientists have found that you're, you come in here, the, at the back of the brain, your brain goes, appears to be a church. And then moving up towards the front of the brain, it's collecting sense data to say which kind of church and what the specifics are. So we're always writing stories in, in our minds. So I think it's a... Um, to the extent that we feel disoriented, agitated, hateful, blah, blah, um, you know, it's, it's because we've engaged in anti-story tendencies. We believe surficial, agitated, agenda-laced stories, and we've neglected maybe culturally uh, the long, slow-cooked Chekhovian story that assumes reader and writer are on a continuum, you know. And creates a perspective too, puts it in, in a time perspective. This this will pass. Yes, you know, so, yeah. yes, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah um, I, similarly, I think the first live event I did after a whole bunch of Zoom events, I just almost wept. I'm like, I've missed you, <laughs> you know. That, that there really is this great communion uh, um, between reader and writer. And so much of what you do is on the page in your head alone in a journal that to get out and um, I'm always sort of amazed that people have read my books and you know when you've read a great book and you can't wait to tell someone about it well when you've written a book and you can't wait to tell them about it and they're in a crowd you just feel yeah it really feels you know I think I feel more grateful than ever to be able to do things like this um, and and I, I because maybe I have a journalism background I I look for ways to really capture what's happening. Um, Camus called it the wager of your generation. And, mm -hmm. and I feel like maybe more responsibility, um, more of the sort of journalistic responsibility that I used to, than I, that I used mm -hmm. to feel than just trying to write you know, something that my agent likes or that, uh, <laughs> that sells. Not that I don't want to do that. <laughs> Jess Walter, George Saunders, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you, sir. You, thank you. That was George Saunders and Jess Walter in conversation from the 2022 Portland Book Festival. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to the Literary Arts Marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project, from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.